Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first Aristotelian Society uh, meeting of 2017. Um, it's a great pleasure this, this week to welcome my colleague Hassock Chang from the Department of History and Philosophy of Science in Cambridge. And uh, Hassock is going to talk to us about pragmatist coherence as a source of truth and reality. Thank you very much, Tim. So it is a great pleasure to be here. Thank you all for being here, despite the tube strike and all that. Um, I have to admit that I, I've not been a frequent participant in the Aristotelian Society meetings. Uh, it is a great honor to speak here, and I hope I got the spirit of the place correctly. I've done my best. Um, this is work in progress, certainly, and this occasion uh, of writing the draft and presenting the talk has given, given me um, good impetus for pushing it along, so I already have you to thank for. Uh, I do hope to learn quite a lot in the discussion, so I, I, mean, I think it will be fairly obvious as I go on which parts are half-baked and which parts need more thinking, etc. One thing I certainly haven't done is a thorough review of the relevant literature, so that's something you can particularly help me with. But without any further apologies, let me begin. So the overall direction of this paper and of some related forthcoming works of mine is to move beyond the propositional conception of knowledge. What I mean by that phrase is the widespread notion that knowledge, or at least the kind of knowledge that deserves the attention of epistemologists, consists in possessing the right sort of belief, let's say justified, in the right sort of propositions, hopefully true ones. Here's just an example of that sort of philosophical common sense. I apologize for using an internet resource, but when I'm trying to show a common sense kind of thing, I think that's okay. Here's another one, well known to you, no doubt. Now, without denying the importance of propositional knowledge, I want to pay attention to other aspects of what we commonly call knowledge, which to me seems even more significant than the propositional aspect. I'm not going to pretend that the move I'm making is a novel one, especially to this audience. After all, it was here at the Aristotelian Society that Gilbert Ryle presented his distinction between knowing how and knowing that in his uh, presidential address back in 1945. And um, that work has been discussed in another presidential address more recently by Paul Snowden in 2003, although in a critical light. So it should be uh, no surprise to this audience, I hope, that somebody might want to push in the direction of emphasizing knowing how rather than knowing that, or rather in combination. But uh, I hope I have something slightly new to contribute so what I'd like to uh, start with is an intuition that it should not be taken for granted, at least, that knowledge as ability to do things is subordinate to knowledge as information, stories, and retrieval. 
But somehow, the direction of epistemology pioneered by Ryle and his fellow travelers such as J.L. Austin, not to mention the later Wittgenstein, has become sidelined in the mainstream of analytic philosophy, a tradition which they had themselves done so much to establish. I think there are many good reasons for revival of this line of work in which I follow Jennifer Hornsby and others. My own particular motivations are rooted in the needs of the philosophy of science rather than epistemology or other branches of philosophy. I would argue that knowing how is just as important in science as in everyday life, though Ryle's examples tended to be taken from everyday life. In this context, it is interesting to note that Alfred Senior, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who allegedly had first conceived the idea of the society, this society and served as the first secretary of it, he was a scientist by profession, an analytical chemist rather than an analytical philosopher. As H. Wilden Carr put it in his 50-year retrospective on the society in 1929, the ideal of the Aristotelian society, I quote, is the study of philosophy not as an academical subject, but as the story of human thinking, unquote. The story of human thinking in the modern times must surely include the story of scientific knowledge. So I hope you will find my scientific focus acceptable for today's proceeding. Now, to get our intuitions going, let's consider briefly some examples of the sort of things that we should want to know in science, in addition to cut and dried facts. I think we should want to know how to analyze, for example, a complex organic molecule to ascertain its composition and structure. And we want to know how to learn and teach such a skill. We want to know not only the trajectory of a planet, say, but how to compute it, which involves knowing how to solve the equations of the basic physics involved. We also want to know how to come up with such equations in the first place. We want to know how to measure temperature and humidity, the rate of inflation, the level of well-being of a population, what have you. We want to know how to synthesize a new pharmaceutical agent and how to test for its clinical efficacy. We want to know how to make a superconductor that will operate above the temperature of liquid nitrogen. We want to know how to sequence a DNA, how to run a Monte Carlo simulation of an experiment we can't carry out physically, how to model a complex situation as a causal graph, etc., etc. We should want to have an epistemology that can address these questions of knowledge as ability in a direct way rather than skirting around them in an awkward and roundabout way, treating them as the applications of propositions that we believe or as inessential accompaniments to propositions. Another source of motivation for getting away from propositional conception of knowledge is the work of Thomas Kuhn and others who took a serious historical look at the development of scientific knowledge. Philosophers had usually conceived the task of judgment facing scientists as the problem of theory choice. But Kuhn showed quite convincingly, I think, that scientists' choice at the most crucial moments in the history of science was between entire paradigms rather than merely theories. Now, what exactly Kuhn meant by paradigm was famously debatable, but at least 
It had to be admitted that the paradigm contained particular methods of work and criteria of judgment, as well as straightforward descriptive statements. Theory choice came to be seen to depend on the choice concerning non-propositional aspects of science. That is at the heart of the Kuhnian incommensurability problem, quite separately from its semantic aspect. Whether or not one agrees with everything Kuhn says, which probably nobody does, it has to be admitted that our unit of analysis must include something beyond mere propositions. Now, in some previous publications, I have proposed that scientific work, as well as non-scientific but knowledge-related aspects of life, can be analyzed in terms of what I called epistemic activities and systems of practice. In conscious opposition to the more customary analysis of scientific knowledge as consisting of propositions. I defined an epistemic activity as a coherent set of mental or physical actions or operations that are intended to contribute to the production or improvement of knowledge in a particular way in accordance with some discernible rules. Epistemic activities normally do not and should not occur in isolation. Rather, each one tends to be practiced in relation to others, constituting a whole system. So a scientific system of practice, as I called it, is formed by a coherent and interacting set of epistemic activities performed with a view to achieve certain aims. So this goes on in my other work, but let me illustrate just very briefly with an example. Antoine Lavoisier, at the end of the 18th century, created a new system of chemistry whose main activities included things like making various chemical reactions, including those involving gases especially, tracking chemical substances through weight measurement, classifying compounds according to their compositions, and analyzing organic substances by combustion. The overall aims of this system included determining the composition of various chemical substances and explaining chemical reactions in terms of the composition of the substances involved. Now, as it turned out, the linchpin in this whole way of thinking is the notion of coherence, which occurs in both definitions up there, which is the main thing I want to elaborate on in the rest of this paper today. The coherent, because I hadn't really done it in my previous work where I just used the notion in a rather intuitive way. The coherence of a system, continuing in that intuitive vein, we could say goes beyond mere consistency between propositions involved in the activities. Rather, coherence consists in various actions coming together in an effective way towards the achievement of one's aims. Coherence as such comes in degrees and different shapes, and it is necessarily a less precise concept than consistency, which comes well-defined through logical axioms. An important part of my proposal is to keep in mind the aims that scientists are trying to achieve in each and every situation. Therefore, looking at science really as a set of intentional activities. The presence and operation of an identifiable aim is what distinguishes actions and activities from mere physical happenings involving human bodies, 
So it is also what places knowledge firmly in the realm of actions. So that, I hope, gives you enough of a sense of the motivations that push me in the direction I'm going today. Now, according to the standard propositional conception, knowledge is a matter of mentally possessing statements that correspond to the world. This picture embodies an ideal of knowledge focused on correspondence, an ideal that is impossible actually to approach for two main reasons. First reason is a category mistake. Otto Neurath put the point succinctly back in 1931 when he said, statements are compared with statements, not with, quote, experiences, not with a world, nor with anything else. Here's Hilary Putnam's complaint about a similar thing. J.L. Austin tried to discern a play in an untroublesome sense in which statements correspond to facts, and what might say, of course, that the world consists of facts. But it still remains in Austin's account, rather mysterious, I think, what this correspondence actually consists in. The Tarski disquotation scheme doesn't save us here. It makes sense as a matter of relationship between two languages, language and meta-language to be more precise, or tautologically as a relationship within one language. Either way, it says nothing about how statement and fact might relate. Secondly, it must be admitted that we have no access to the so-called external world except through the statements that we regard as true. So seeking statement toward correspondence is not an operable move unless it's meant to be a circular, or, uh, circular and tautological move in which we say we access the world through our access to true statements and that true statements are just those that give us access to the world. As I've expressed elsewhere, I believe that our notion of a statement of a theory corresponding to the world is actually a metaphorical projection from actual representational activities in which we make a depiction of something and we do have access to both the object and the depiction so that the correspondence between the two may be checked. This impossibility of the propositional ideal of knowledge as correspondence gives rise to some well-known problems in the philosophy of science. At least since Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, first published in 1962, philosophy of science has been plagued by doubts about the security of scientific knowledge. Not the, not the global skeptical doubts that one can do nothing about, but practical doubts that manifest themselves concerning actual situations of scientific choice. On the one hand, we uphold science as the best model of knowledge. On the other hand, we are forced to admit, if we pay any attention to the history of science, that scientific change has no clear direction concerning the fundamental ontology of nature, and that our <coughs> optimism concerning scientific progress is dampened down by the so-called pessimistic induction from the history of science, in which nearly all previously trusted scientific theories are later rejected. At the heart of this problem is the simple fact that the ideal of believing true propositions is inoperable if we do not have a method of determining which propositions are really true. Uh, 
This is where we are stuck, precisely, if we have a correspondence theory of truth and we want to know the truth of statements concerning unobservable entities, the familiar quandary of the scientific realism debate. So in the alternative vision of knowledge that I seek to promote here, knowledge is closely related to the ability to perform successful activities. These activities and their performances reside in the world, the same world in which we live. They do not discernibly correspond to the external world, whatever the, the latter phrase might mean. So let us ask, what is it that makes an activity successful? Coherence is the general concept that I want to introduce in the framing of answers to that class of questions although the details of particular answers will depend greatly on the particular situation. So I want to say, as Wittgenstein used to write, I want to say, I want to say that the coherence of an activity is conducive to its success, that is, the achievement of its aims. Coherence, as I intended, is about the fitting together of actions not chiefly about the logical relationship between propositions. To make that distinction clear, I will use the phrase pragmatist coherence, as I've done in the title of this paper, whenever needed. And I might say just coherence when the meaning should be clear enough from context. So here's an attempt at the definition. I define pragmatist coherence as a harmonious fitting together of elements and aspects of an activity that leads to the successful achievement of the aims of that activity. So such coherence may consist in something as simple as the correct coordination of bodily movements needed, say, in riding a bicycle, famously, or lighting a match, surprisingly hard if you watch some people, or walking up the stairs, which we know is very difficult to achieve from recent work in robotics. Or it could be something as complex as what is involved in the successful integration of a range of material technologies and various abstract theories in the operation of the global positioning system. A coherent epistemic activity achieves its aim well and avoid performative self-contradictions. Now, in puzzling out what coherence is, I think it, it is helpful to think about what it, things, how things look when coherence is lacking. So here's a simple example of pragmatist incoherence. Sorry about that. I hope I didn't hit anything valuable. Trying to drink my water didn't work. Oliver Sacks, who... Uh, Many of you will have read, I'm sure. You may remember um, a case from uh, how, what is it, a man who mistook his wife for a hat, a man whose proprioception was all out of whack, so he couldn't lift anything properly. He'd go like this, because the force he would exert with his muscles just didn't match up to the weight of the thing he was trying to lift. When we do not heed the sign that warns, mind your step, 
that rare moment of stumble reminds us how carefully and how well we normally maintain the coherence of our bodily movements in everyday life without even thinking about it. Incoherence could be due to false beliefs, for example, about where my mouth is, as you saw earlier, or to, uh, due to mutually contradictory beliefs as well. But what I want to emphasize is that Inaptitude of belief is not the only reason for incoherence. Incoherence could also be due to the lack of cap capability. Starting with the simple lack of muscular strength to do something or the failure of eyesight. It could also be due to contingencies that we haven't even contemplated. The floor may not hold, lightning may strike my head, or there may be a random deranged person who shoots me while I'm waiting to collect my bags at the airport, which just happened in Florida. I must stress that my notion of coherence is not what epistemologists usually mean by coherence. This will be just, just too elementary for some of you, but uh, I think it's worth rehearsing. In the most simple-minded version of the coherence theory of truth, for example, coherence is taken to mean mere logical consistency within a set of statements. Now that is a nothing short of a philosophical disaster, an invitation to vicious circularity and the most problematic kind of relativism. James O. Young here notes that more plausible versions of the coherence theory take the coherence relation as some form of entailment or mutual explanatory support between propositions. A similar thought to Jung's later, latter formulation is expressed by Richard Foley, where he says, quote, coherentists deny that any beliefs are self-justifying and propose instead that beliefs are justified insofar as they belong to a system of beliefs that are mutually supportive, end of quote. But the problems of circularity and relativism remain in the idea of propositions rendering one another true by mutual support without anything else to ground any of them. In contrast, I define pragmatist coherence as a fitting together of actions that leads to the satisfaction of one's aims, including for many, many situations, empirical aims. Pragmatist coherence is the key characteristic of a successful activity that we carry out in the world. This coherence cannot be achieved in an arbitrary fashion. On the contrary, in order to do things successfully in the world, we need to have an understanding or mastery of our surroundings. It is pragmatist coherence, not the mirage of correspondence, through which the mind-independent world is actually brought to bear on our knowledge. Pragmatist coherence carries within it the constraint by nature. In fact, having cleared away the ungrammatical illusion of a direct correspondence between proposition and reality, we can see that pragmatist coherence is the only way in which reality can enter our practices. So, having spelled out the notion of pragmatist coherence, what I'd now like to do is come to a more careful consideration of propositions, again, and their truth. 
So how does a statement relate to an activity? This is the basic um, ontology of action I need to work out. More specifically, we need to ask, if coherence is the property of an activity, how does it relate to truth, which is the property of a statement or a proposition? Apologies for using statement and propositions interchangeably today. I'll, I'll be more careful later in life. That which I just proposed is a significant and difficult question, but let me attempt an initial sketch of an answer. The pragmatic theory of truth, so-called, attributed to William James, is widely regarded as absurd. And I think this has also contributed greatly to the unpopularity of pragmatism among tough-minded philosophers. So this is what not to do, right? Here's probably the most notorious statement by James, where he says, the true, to put it very briefly, is only the expedient in the way of our thinking, just as the right is, the, is only the expedient in the way of our behaving. Expedient in almost any fashion, and so on. So amazingly, in one sentence, James managed to piss off epistemologists and ethicists completely. And this didn't work out, as most of you know better than I do, I'm sure. Now, I think James's choice of the word expedient here was quite unfortunate, suggesting mere convenience or usefulness. Possibly the word had quite a different connotation back then. That's for the real James scholars to debate. But what I want to do is try to extract the spirit of James's statement sympathetically. What he's saying, I think, is, um, no, I don't want that yet. That was me. That's, this is still James. What James is saying, I think, is that how we tell if a statement is true is by seeing if it works out in practice. And that there might not really be anything more to what it means for a statement to be true over and above how we tell if it's true. Now, of course, there are well-known objections to that way of thinking, but let's carry on. The intuition is that the truth of the statement, say, the cat is on the mat, consists in the conjunction of a myriad of facts, such as that I have a visual image of a cat sitting on a mat, that my friend standing next to me has the same kind of visual image, that when my friend goes to lift the cat off the mat, she does find something furry, warm, and wriggling in her hands, that a screeching meow issues from that creature, that my friend ends up with a scratch on her hands, that the vet recognizes the cat as my old cat and not some fake robot cat, etc., etc. That may be all there is to the truth of the statement. If we set aside again the metaphorical projection, what I think is a metaphorical projection of correspondence to the inaccessible external world, in which the real cat, apart from all of our feline experiences, somehow maintains its ghostly existence, like Ryle's ghost in the machine. So I think that's James's spirit, whether you agree or not uh, with that spirit. I hope you will agree with it a bit more, at least after hearing the rest of this talk, than you do at the moment. 
So preserving James is spirit, but trying to avoid the obvious pitfalls, I want to propose a different formulation of his idea in terms of my notion of coherence. So it goes like this. A statement is true in a given circumstance if belief in it is needed in a coherent activity. For example, take the statement that the surface of a sphere is proportional to the square of its radius. This statement is needed in a whole array of activities, ranging from successfully figuring out the amount of paint needed to paint balls of different sizes, all the way to Kant's deduction of the inverse square law of gravitation. So it is true in a wide range of circumstances, according to my definition. Now I want to add some much-needed elaborations and qualifications concerning various parts of that definition of truth. There are five of them. So first, the activity involved in the constitution of truth does not have to be that of explicit hypothesis testing, which would be the nearest uh, activity version of the idea of a statement corresponding to the warrant. Sometimes a true statement is explicitly confirmed, but other times its truth consists in its involvement in other kind of successes. The pertinent activities do not even have to fall under the rubric of what I call epistemic activities, by which I mean activities that are explicitly intended to increase and improve knowledge. Second qualification or elaboration, this one rather. Why do I say coherent rather than successful in my definition? Wouldn't it be more straightforward to say uh, successful there instead of coherent? Putting it in terms of coherence does make truth one step removed from direct verification through empirical successes, allowing for an occasional lucky success of an incoherent activity. Now, this may be unsatisfying at first glance, but it does make the notion of coherence and truth less subject to accidental successes and failures determined by case-by-case -case variations of fringe circumstances. What is central and what is fringe, as I called it, in the characterization of an activity may be a conventionalist decision, but it is not, therefore, unimportant. Now, this is a point I have been agonizing over a bit, so I welcome any comments you have on that. Third, requiring that belief in the statement in question should be needed in a coherent activity is designed to remove the worry that the statement is involved in the activity in a superfluous way, in a way reminiscent of the Gettier problem or the tacking paradox. So what is involved here is not a logical necessity that um, <coughs> we can reason out a priori, but a pragmatic necessity which can only be learned empirically. In other words, to test the truth of a statement, we can check its pragmatist necessity by asking ourselves, can the coherence of the activity be maintained? The indication of which would be that the aims of the activity are still achieved if we negate the proposition in question. So for example, we can perfectly well use Maxwell's equations while denying that the ether exists. 
So we know that belief in the existence of the ether is not necessary in relation to the coherence of the activity of solving Maxwell's equations, even though it was not superfluous in Maxwell's original activity of model building, exemplified in that famous picture, um, which actually led him to the equations in the first place. So checking for pragmatic necessities I think nothing grander than Mill's method of difference. It may not live up to some overblown image of a philosophical solution, but it is how we get on in science and in the rest of life too. To the problem of superfluous propositions, there is no magic solution. As C.I. Lewis, Clarence Irving Lewis, put it in his review of Dewey's The Quest for Certainty, salvation is through work through experimental effort intelligently directed to an actual human future. Fourth point is that if truth is defined in terms of coherence, it has to be a matter of degree. And I think that is right. And that, that I know is going to be counterintuitive. As Austin noted in his paper, Truth, um, one of those that he gave at the joint sessions, I think, as Austin noted, very true, true enough, etc., are perfectly sensible locutions, and it is unreasonable to try to reduce ordinary judgments of truth to yes or no. Now, many philosophers of science, mostly in the course of trying to defend scientific realism, have actually already fallen into the habit of speaking about approximate truth and partial truth. Perhaps one would argue that approximate truth is an imprecise way of speaking, and what we're really talking about is approximation to truth, which itself remains a yes or no matter. But I don't really see what is to be gained in preserving binarity for truth in that way. Finally, my definition only defines truth in a given circumstance. So truth comes attached with a specific scope as well as coming in degrees. This also means I need a non-standard theory of meaning and reference, which is to come. Not today. Uh, this is also to say that the truth of a statement constituted in one activity may be extended through the same statements used in other coherent activities. A universal truth, then, would be a statement that is true in all circumstances in which the statement can be applied. When we say that mere convenience should not be mistaken for truth, this is normally because the truth will out. That is, we should not say that a statement is true without qualification if we expect that it might be shown not to be true in some other circumstances. So James's definition of truth quoted earlier actually continues as follows, which tends to confirm my reading of him, I think. So he says, not just expedient, but expedient in the long run and on the whole, of course. For what meets expediently all the experience in sight won't necessarily meet all farther experiences equally satisfactorily. Experience, as we know, has ways of boiling over, nice metaphor, and making us correct our present formulas. The last bit of this statement actually fits very well with my notion that pragmatist coherence is the only way in which reality gives input into our knowledge. 
And this gives coherentist truth, as I mean it, the mind independence that realists value most in correspondence truth, while correspond coherent coherence truth sorry, remains an internal notion, meaningful within a system of practice, not without it. So um, a slightly extended example, I think, may usefully illustrate how this pragmatist, coherentist notion of truth works. Take what was perhaps the single most important proposition in the history of organic structural chemistry in the 19th century, which says carbon has valency four, meaning that it is capable of forming four bonds with other chemical units, either atoms or radicals. This statement was needed in the successful, um, sorry, this statement was needed in the successful working out of numerous molecular structures, and it was also needed, in my sense, in the understanding and execution of substitution reactions. For example, a body of methane gas, CH4, shown in here in the original ball and stick kind of model. A body of methane gas could be made to absorb a volume of chlorine gas and emit an equal volume of hydrogen gas, turning the methane into chloromethane, CH3Cl. Such a substitution could be made four times in, a, in total, in the end yielding carbon tetrachloride. Such successful instances, it is fair to say, indicate the truth of carbon has valency four. But this truth was a limited one, which I want to argue didn't make it any less true in the relevant sense where it was true. So why was it limited? We know, for example, that the structure of carbon monoxide remained a mystery for a long time. Even carbon dioxide was not trivial to understand but it could be accommodated by saying that the carbon atom formed a double bond on each side with each of the two oxygen atoms it was combined with, thereby using up all of its four bonding potentials or valencies. But it was not clear at all how carbon monoxide could be understood. And that remained. All the while, chemists continue to believe very strongly that carbon has valency four, damn it and it worked out extremely well um, throughout the history of 19th century chemistry. So that's the sense of limitation to truth that I think we can quite nicely live with. Now, my new coherence theory of truth is indistinguishable, I think, from James's pragmatist theory of truth, if you free it from misunderstandings, or from Dewey's notion of warranted assertability. According to this constellation of conceptions, if our use of a theory has led to successful outcomes and not as a result of any strange accident or coincidence as far as we can ascertain, then we can and should say, modestly and provisionally, that the relevant statements made in this theory are true. In the same modest sense as we say that it is true that rabbits have whiskers and they live in underground burrows, etc. This truth is operational and verifiable. It is the same thing as empirical confirmation taken in a broad sense. This truth is achievable to various degrees and its pursuit is clearly useful. 
A statement being true will mean that it passes all the tests of correctness that we can apply. As when you say, I don't know, is it true that there is an airport in Cambridge? There is, actually. We know exactly how to answer that question and how to double check and triple check it as we need and under which circumstances to start doubting the statement. As Putnam put it succinctly in the previous source I quoted, truth must be such that we, say, we can say how it is possible for us to grasp what it is. Now, when my work is more extended and developed, it will also include a similar pragmatist characterization of the notion of reality. I had over-ambitiously planned to include a significant discussion of that in today's talk, but realized that it would be too much to attempt. So I'm only going to give a telegraphic summary of that here. The easiest way to see how pragmatist co coherence can also ground an operative notion of reality is to start with Ian Hacking's so-called entity realism, where he famously said, if you can spray them, then they are real. Hacking adds, one can believe in some entities without believing in any particular theory in which they are embedded. Admittedly overstated claim, but we can get to a sensible core of it. Here's another longer statement. Concepts enabling successful activities deserve our realist confidence. So I'm proposing a coherence theory of reality, if you will, according to which a putative entity should be considered real if it is employed in a coherent activity that relies on its existence and its basic properties by which we identify it. So that's all I'm going to say about reality for the moment. I, I can elaborate further in the Q&A if you'd like. But on, without doing that, time is ticking away, so let me conclude. The question I'd like to return to that's been implicit throughout this presentation is this. Why do we want a theory of knowledge? Question not often posed by epistemologists. Of course we want a theory of knowledge, but what good is it? I contend that it is, we want a theory of knowledge so that we can have more and better knowledge then our theory of knowledge needs to tell us something instructive about the processes through which knowledge is gained and improved. This is the direction in which I've attempted to steer my own epistemological thinking, such as it is. So what have we learned in that regard from the consideration of pragmatist coherence, and what do we still need to learn from it? Let me propose a philosophical experiment in the spirit of Ryle, why don't we try to take knowledge as information as subordinate to knowledge as ability? I think trying out that way of thinking will generate useful insights that help us in the acquisition and improvement of knowledge. And if not, we can go back to what we usually do. There are two distinct senses in which knowing how, I, I would say, is larger than knowing that. First, if Ryle is correct, knowing how is a concept, he says, logically prior to the concept of knowing that, 
And knowing that presupposes knowing how. This notion is, again, further articulated by Jennifer Hornsby. In the other direction, knowledge that enters as an important contributing element in the process of knowing how. As, again, Ryle puts it, I quote, effective possession of a piece of knowledge that involves knowing how to use that knowledge, when required, for the solution of other theoretical or practical problems. There's a distinction between the museum possession and the workshop possession of knowledge, unquote. So if you put together these two aspects of the embedding of knowing that into knowing how, we can begin to, begin to see belief in propositions as only an aspect of knowledge rather than its core or essence or final destination. Knowing that may only be flickering moments in the continual flow of knowing how, and propositional belief only occasional crystallizations in that flow of activity. These thoughts also point to a larger project of considering how verbal articulations, which humans have learned to make, aid life, which has of course been lived without verbal articulations by many animals and humans. And here I, I also need to go back to Michael Polanyi and his thoughts about articulation and tacit knowledge. The consideration of belief and truth does not exhaust the role of articulation in knowing how. As Ryle again pointed out, the verbalizations that occur when we try to articulate the principles guiding our activities are mostly in the imperative mood, not in the declarative. In fact, imperatives are probably the most important occasions for the correspondence of the verbal and the nonverbal in human life. That, I think, is the correspondence that we really ought to worry about and figure out, rather than the imagined correspondence between the verbal and the transcendental. The philosophical grammar, invoking Wittgenstein, the philosophical grammar of imperatives is an urgent task for philosophers of science trying to pay attention to scientific practice and to pragmatists more generally. Similar attention, I think, is also needed to the philosophical grammar of interrogatives. And here I look forward to studying the works of Jason Stanley and Tim Williamson, although I think they're going to oppose my <laughs> general direction. And how about the exclamatory mood? In making these considerations, we would do well to remember Austin's caution. Quote, many utterances which have been taken to be statements are not in fact descriptive. It is simply not the business of such utterances to, quote, correspond to the fact. And even genuine statements have other businesses besides that of so corresponding. So there is a great deal left to do. But for now, the final point, I hope I have shown that moving away from the narrowly propositional view of knowledge allows us to retool the notions of truth and reality so that they become operable. Thereby, we can reclaim these key concepts for the use of people who are actually engaged in the production and improvement of empirical knowledge. We live in the world and knowledge is only meaningful from that perspective within the world. It is a futile and pernicious philosophical dream, I contend, to seek the God's eye view or the view from nowhere, 
to hope to find the so-called external perspective from which we can tell the real shape of the world. I want to end by quoting a much underappreciated philosopher of science, Roberto Toretti, in Chile. He blasts the so-called scientific realists who believe, quote, that reality is well-defined once and for all, independently of human action and human thought, yet in a way that can adequately uh, be articulated in human discourse. Toretti laments that realists hold that science, science aims to develop quote, just the sort of discourse which adequately articulates reality, which, as Plato said, cuts it at its joint, cuts it at its joint, and that modern science is visibly approaching the fulfillment of this aim. With what evidence is the underlying question behind that? Toretti confesses that he finds it difficult to accept any of these statements or even to make sense of them. What I've tried to propose today is that the notions of truth and reality are in fact perfectly meaningful in the phenomenal realm of representing and intervening, and they should stay in that realm. And much uh, productive uh, work, I think, lies ahead in pushing this direction of thought. And what I'd like your help with in the question period is any kind of suggestions you might have in pushing that far, far enough. Um, and in the end, if when pushed far enough, you still think it's not good, then again, we can go back to what we usually do in epistemology. Thank you very much.